manifest your son to the world. I pray as we um, begin Mark's gospel and look through it this year, that our faith in your son will grow, that our hope in you through him would deepen, and that your love in our life will expand. Please enable me as I speak, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're beginning uh, with Mark's Gospel at the start of 2019 and going through it this year. Uh, Mark is the shortest of the Gospels, so we could have chosen Matthew and taken two years. Um, It's the shortest of all four Gospels, Matthew, Luke and John. Mark gets off to a flying start and unlike uh, Matthew and Luke, Mark starts at the beginning of Jesus' ministry life, whereas of course... Uh, Matthew and Luke uh, begin with the lead up to Jesus' birth. Mark uses the word immediately quite a lot. Uh, So the pace of this gospel just seems to be really quick. It goes from one scene to the next without really taking a breath. Mark just doesn't get concerned or sidetracked by details uh, the way the other three gospel writers do. Mark simply gets the message out as quickly as possible, his focus is on Jesus' life and teaching. However, for all the brevity of Mark, it seems clear that both Matthew and Luke used or relied upon Mark in the compilations of their respective Gospels. Now, one thing to note, nowhere are we told who the author of Mark's Gospel is. Unlike, say, um, the letters from Paul, Paul will often write at the beginning of his letter, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and, and, and he'll launch into his letter. So why do we call this gospel the gospel of Mark? Well, it, go, it has a very, very long tradition. Many prominent early Christian, what we call Christian fathers, Christian writers of the first three centuries, attribute this gospel to the pen of Mark, the same Mark who is mentioned at a number of places in the New Testament, also known as John Mark. Uh, You can see some references on the screen. I know they're very small, but there's, you know, at least six to eight verses there that he's mentioned in. Mark was part of uh, Paul's ministry team, he was part of Barnabas' ministry team, and he was part of the Apostle Peter's ministry team. In fact, Peter refers to Mark as uh, his son. So close was their relationship. The earliest record we have of Mark outside of the New Testament comes from Papias, the bishop of Herapolis, during the uh, early part of the second century. So we're talking about 110 AD. And uh, Papias was believed to be in direct... um, Uh, communication with the Apostle John, also known as John the Elder. And Papias writes that the Elder told him, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered, not indeed in order of things said or done by the Lord, for he had not heard the Lord but had followed him, but later on, as I said, followed Peter. So Papias is saying, Mark travelled around with Peter, and heard everything that Peter was saying, and he, and he put it all down. And he didn't do it so much in a, in a chronological order. Um, 
but not making, as it were, an arrangement of the Lord's oracles so that Mark did nothing wrong in writing down single points as he remembered them. For to one thing he gave attention, to leave out nothing of what he had heard and to make no false statements in them. You can hear the carefulness with which Mark has compiled the gospel. So Papias affirms a few things for us. Number one, Mark is the author. The same Mark that travelled around with Peter. Mark recorded the teachings that Peter gave. And also, the gospel is not so much a chronological ordering. Nonetheless, it's a true reflection of what Jesus did and said. But additionally, we can glean that the early Christians recognised Mark as the author. You know, if we hold to Papias' reliability here. A number of scholars note the identification of Mark as the author of the second gospel goes back to the first generation of Christians. That's a quote from uh, Carson, Moo and Morris, uh, very notable scholars. So it's a very old tradition. Now, in researching Mark, I looked online for a few things. It's very easy to find criticism of the authorship of uh, Mark's gospel. And it must be said that our faith isn't so much on who is the author of Mark's gospel, but on the person that Mark's gospel is about, namely Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, I do not see any other contender uh, for authorship other than Mark, the best evidence that we have coming from the very early centuries, points squarely upon Mark. Okay, let's uh, look at our passage. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's very straightforward, isn't it? Mark just tells you right up front what this is about. And the first couple of words, the beginning, is reminiscent of Genesis 1, where God creates everything. And there's quite a number of allusions to Genesis 1 found in Mark 1. For instance, you've got the dove coming down. Um, And you recall in Genesis 1, it talks about the spirit hovering above the face of the deep or upon the waters. And within Mark 1, it's the, the dove. Now, Um, the Old Testament was translated into Aramaic and it was called the Targum. And when the rabbis were translating it into Arabic, they talked about the Holy Spirit moving upon the waters. They said hovering like or fluttering like a dove. That was how they explained it because that word has that connotation to it. And so early Christians reading this or early Jews reading this would have already gone back to Genesis 1 and seen the parallels there. Or you think of Adam and Eve being created and being with the animals and going through temptation straight away. Well, it says later in Mark that Jesus went you know, out to the wilderness and was tempted and he was with the wild animals. He underwent a test straight away. So there's all these allusions to Genesis 1. Next, the good news which is one word in in Greek, gospel, euangelion. Jesus Christ himself is the good news. It's in his life, his teachings, it's in his deeds, his death and resurrection, we find the gospel, the good news of our redemption, the good news of our salvation. God has provided redemption, forgiveness for your sins and for mine. 
If Genesis 1 shows us God beginning the work of creation, Mark 1 shows us God beginning the work of redemption. Who is Jesus Christ that he can redeem the world? Mark states up front, Jesus is the Christ. Christos in Greek, it means the same as Messiah in Hebrew. It means anointed king. The king that Israel had put their hopes in. God's people. But Mark adds further, the son of God. Therefore, Jesus is also divine. He comes into the world with God's authority. But of course, all the kings of Israel were called sons of God. They were all given that title. So Mark makes the point even more strongly because he quotes from Isaiah. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. Who is the Lord in Isaiah? If we were to go back into Isaiah and uh, look it up in our pew Bibles, we would see the word Lord all in capitals. Now, wherever you see the word Lord all in capitals in the Old Testament, it means Yahweh. In other words, prepare the way for Yahweh, for God. And so Mark is making clear that God's promise to send a messenger has come true. John the baptizer is identified as the messenger. And Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is God. That's why he can redeem the world. Now, we as the reader are given this insight, this gift of knowing who Jesus is right from the beginning. But as we go through Mark's gospel, we'll see that it's hidden from most people. They don't know who Jesus is and they're left wondering, who is this man? Who is this man that can talk to the, the uh, natural world and it obeys him? Who is this man that can cast out demons? Who is this man that can heal people? They're all left wondering, but we should be knowing exactly who this man is. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God incarnate. Nonetheless, who Jesus is comes out just in little snippets here and there throughout Mark's gospel. We'll see it in a couple of verses because as um, soon as Jesus is baptized, a voice from heaven speaks, this is my son. And then later at the transfiguration, the same, God's voice speaks again, it's my son, listen to him. When demons yell out, you're the son of the most high, it comes out. When Peter confesses, you are the Messiah. Jesus himself will affirm his identity to the high priest when he's interrogated. And lastly, at his crucifixion, the centurion will say, surely this was the Son of God. The identity will keep coming out time and time again, despite its hiddenness. Now, a little bit about John the Baptist. John comes, obviously, in fulfillment to prophecy from Isaiah. I think Mark doesn't make a big enough deal of this. He simply quotes Isaiah and then launches into saying John the baptizer appeared. You know, I think if I was Mark, I would have made a much bigger deal of it. I would have put it in bold text. I would have underlined it. I would have said the prophecy has come true. Uh, look at what's happened here. But Mark is not like that. He's more like God said this would happen and here comes John the baptizer. 
straight away. It's quite amazing. I like it. I want to have faith like that. Especially when, God, when it comes to God making promises to us. Think of the promises that we are given. That we're forgiven. That we're made clean. That we'll stand before God holy. That Jesus Christ is with us to the very end. That he will come again. Mark seems to show no surprise at all that God's word will come true. I want to have faith like that. I want us to have faith like that. Well, back to John. John is the last of the prophets in the guise of the kind of Old Testament prophets. He's wearing some funky clothing (laughs) made of camel's hair and wearing a leather belt and eating some interesting food as well. He's basically dressed up like Elijah. If you go back into the Old Testament, you'll see that's the way Elijah got around. So he's, he's dressed up like one of these kind of funky prophets, you know, and, and um, giving us God's word. His mission is to prepare the way for the Lord. Well, what's that mission look like? Well, he pre- preaches a message of repentance, the forgiveness of sins. That's a call to everyone, to change their ways, change their minds, change their behavior. Uh, Jesus himself will preach uh, repentance, as we'll see next week. The message is universal. Prepare for the kingdom of God. Soon we'll, talk, we'll see how heaven has been torn open. God has come into the world. Prepare for his kingdom. All of us are to prepare for God's kingdom through repentance and believing the good news. We're told um, that Jesus himself is baptised and it's a moment where some cataclysmic things happen. The heavens are torn apart. The spirit descends. The voice of God is heard. In Isaiah 64, uh, 1, the prophet Isaiah is crying out to God lamenting, and he says these words, oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. You ever felt like that? God, where are you? If only you would just come. It's the same sort of lament that that Isaiah has. Tear open the heavens, reveal yourself. And the tearing apart of heaven has some significance in Judaism. Uh, Think of it in terms of a really, really long drought where farmers would be saying, oh, if only the heavens would pour down. There's that longing, change things from the way they are, tear open the heavens so that there's finally the blessing of rain. Well, when Solomon's temple was built, you can read about this in the Old Testament, it was a magnificent day and the spirit came and filled the place and uh, all the priests fell to the ground. They're all crying out holy. It was an, an amazing event. But as we know, that temple ended up getting destroyed. God's people went wayward. They were exiled. The Babylonians came and they destroyed the temple. God's spirit had long since gone. Now, when the people of God came back from exile, they rebuilt another temple, but the spirit never came. There was a long drought. The prophets ceased. 
God's word wasn't heard. There was no more king. It was a long drought. Tear open the heavens, God. But at the baptism of Jesus, everything changes. The heavens are torn open. Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit like the temple was. And God speaks. The drought is broken. And the words that God speaks reveals much. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Uh, This echoes some really important themes found in the Old Testament. But two verses... I will draw attention to. One from Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a very kingly psalm. It was probably said at the kings of Judah's coronation. Uh, Verse 7 says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. And then there's this servant that's found in Isaiah. We read it often about the servant in Easter, the suffering servant who takes on the sins of the world. Uh, There's this whole motif in Isaiah about a servant. Verse 42, uh, sorry, chapter 42, verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is God speaking. Here is my servant. And uh, you can see there's parallels in these two verses in what God actually says to Jesus Christ. I've highlighted them there. You are my son. My soul delights. It's very similar to you are my son, my beloved. I am well pleased with you. God's word to Jesus Christ draws our attention to these verses in the Old Testament that link the promise of an eternal king with the suffering servant in Isaiah who takes away the sins. Uh, Later in Isaiah, he says, he was pierced, the servant, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. In early Judaism, they didn't see that those two motifs, the, the eternal king and the suffering servant, were one and the same person. But when God speaks to Jesus at his baptism, those two motifs, those two themes come together. Note that as soon as Jesus uh, hears the words of his heavenly father, he is then driven into the wilderness. It's quite violent language. The spirit, uh, I think it says, threw him into the wilderness. Um, He is there tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. Mark states he was with the wild animals. It's a precursor to Jesus' earthly sufferings. Now question, does the the temptation and the suffering that Jesus goes through in the wilderness, does that negate what God the Father has already said to him? Does it negate God's love for him? Of course not. God has just said, you are my son, I love you. Now he's off into the wilderness and he's suffering. We who follow Christ follow in that path of suffering. And no doubt when Jesus was in the wilderness, he had to hold on to his identity as the Messiah, the Son of God. 
We follow Christ in his footsteps and should remind ourselves in temptation and in suffering that these do not negate God's love for us. He has not abandoned us. Tim Keller uh, draws this out in his book, The King's Cross. And he says, "At, at the time Mark was written, Christians were being thrown to the wild animals, just like Jesus was with the wild animals. Not surprisingly, many surviving Christians were tempted to doubt their belief, tempted to hedge their commitment to God. But here, if they read Mark's gospel, they see Jesus experiencing a a spectacular relationship with God and then having to contend with a threat of his own. Suffering and temptation does not mean that God does not love us or has abandoned us. Now, this year, as we go through Mark's gospel, themes that are present in this uh, short prologue will come up again. But I want to end by drawing our attention to what Paul writes to the Colossians, and we had this verse last week. Therefore, as God's chosen people, Paul speaking to us, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Note who you are because of Christ. You are called chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Words that profoundly echo what was spoken to Jesus at both his baptism and transfiguration. You can see the the verses up there from Mark and also Luke. This is my son whom I have chosen. You are my son whom I love. It is through Jesus and what he did that you are called chosen and holy and dearly loved people. These words apply to us. That's why it's our gospel. It's the gospel for us. So I pray as we go through this gospel in 2019 that we will see it afresh, be reacquainted with the gospel within us, Have our faith deepened in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, our good news. Amen. I'd like to invite you to stand now as we sing together. Speak, oh Lord. As we come